welcome to the Rebel Educator Podcast, where we talk to students, educators, and thought leaders who are innovators and creatives in education. I'm your host, Tanya Sheckley. Thanks for joining us. We have with us Barry Sheckley. Barry is a PhD in education and professor emeritus and Ray Nieg School of Education professor from the University of Connecticut. Barry has currently elected to the Board of Education in East Lyme, Connecticut. And since retiring from his professor position at the university, has been consulting with multiple school districts around the country on improving student outcomes and developing different education methods for the betterment of students everywhere. I'm also fortunate that Barry is my father-in-law and serves on our board of directors for Up Academy and helping us create the best educational experience we can there. So thanks for spending some time with me today. My pleasure, Tanya. I want to start off just by asking, what can we hope education might learn from the changes we're going through with our current experience with the virus and being out of school and, and looking forward? How might this change education? So I was thinking about that the other day. I ran across a story of a professor back in the 1800s. His name was Charles Dobson. He was a math professor at Oxford University, and he was very, very troubled by the switch from linear algebra to symbolic algebra. And he was so upset by it that under the guise of pen name Lewis Carroll and under the guise of a children's story, he wrote a book called Alice in Wonderland. And we know the story of Alice in Wonderland, mostly, you know, as a kid's story about Alice running through the forest and chasing rabbits and things. But what Dotson or, well, this pen name Lewis Carroll was really trying to do was he was trying to poke fun and really bring up a lot of concerns about uh, where were we going? You know, and he had uh, Alice fall into a world where two and two could be five, where Geometric figures could be rigid until they weren't. Um, objects could be real until they changed. And time could be constant until it went away. And so he was having Alice like, and that's kind of what he saw the world was like with math at that time. And he had Alice encounter the treasure cat. And uh, Alice asked the cat, so where am I going? You know, which was... Dotson's question to his fellow mathematicians, where are we going? And the cat responded with, uh, it depends a great deal on where you want to get to. And so I, I kind of think that that's what we face today in education with homeschooling, the move to online instruction. You know, we have to be very clear as educators, where are we going? And as uh, Yogi Berra once turned that phrase to say, if you don't know where you're going, you don't know if you'll ever get there. So I thought a lot about that in terms of where we're going, and it's kind of based upon the work I've done as instructor myself using online instruction since the mid-1990s. And I've used various forms and come to fully understand its great, great potential and uh, an underutilized potential, and I've always kind of embraced this current mode to home instruction or uh, online instruction as a way to capitalize on that potential. We wouldn't have done it. We wouldn't have made any strides to that if we hadn't gone through this current, what some people call a grand experiment. So where are we going? And you almost call this a new wonderland of 
online instruction. I think the first thing that's going to happen is that we're going to move into a world where students are more learners than they are students. It's a student to learnership. One example of that, I was working in a middle school with uh, students and we were studying the American Revolution. We were using an online format and the teacher had set up through the library a whole buffet type of resources on a website from videos to ebooks to articles. And they given the students a uh, kind of a roadmap, a roadmap to go through that. Gave the students the questions like, why were we successful in the, in the revolution? And so the students got into that, and one day a couple of girls came up to her and said, where are the women? Everything in that you've given us, everything in our textbook, everything on the website is all about men. You know, we learn about Thomas Jefferson, we learn about Benjamin Franklin, George Washington, Sam Adams. There are no women in any of the resources, and yet we knew that there were women around. So with some chagrin, the teacher said, you know, you're right. And uh, they got, she worked, started working together with the students and they found websites and web information, uh, one of which was a trove of diaries written, written by women in revolutionary times. And so this group of girls went into that and uh, really came up with a lot of useful information and interesting information on the powerful role that women had in the American Revolution. So... Had these girls just been students, they would have followed the lesson plan that the teacher gave them, you know, like read this stuff, you know, find out about the, what happened at the Battle of Saratoga, why was the Battle of Yorktown so important, uh, what were the conflicts writing the Declaration, would have gone out basically with a scripted set of learning outcomes had they been students. They switched over and used the resources to become more learners. And so I think that when we move into online, Teachers have the opportunity to find a whole plethora of uh, resources for students. And the role, I think, of educators is to help students understand their shift from just doing what they're told to exhibiting curiosity and looking at the resources to advance their own learning. So anyway, that's one of the first, you know, in this wonderland, one of the first shifts where we're going. I think we should be thinking of going to an area where we can help students become learners as opposed to students. The second kind of trajectory, I think, in this wonderland is one where we're moving more from repetition to application. So a lot of times in classroom uh, environments, what teachers will do is they have a lesson plan. And in some way, students learn what they're told to learn and they, in some format, repeat a version of that back to the teachers. If we can get students more into application, uh, they start thinking, okay, we have this stuff. What can I do with that? And I ran across an interesting story the other day that has impact upon this. There was a young middle school student in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Her name was Laura Glass. She had a, an assignment using computers, and she, you know, as a middle school teenager, one of the things that interested her most was all the friendships, you know, who... Who was friends with who? Who was in a clique with this person? Who was associated with that? Who sat together at lunch? Who wrote together in the bus? Who was associated with, other, you know, in the library after school and so on? So she very craftily put together a social network of her middle school. You know, all the social networks of from who wrote together in the bus, who was at the locker room, who was in these classes, who sat together at lunch and found um, how 
there was a very strong social network in the school. Now, her dad was a scientist, and he was working on patterns and systems. And one of the systems that he was working on was the spread of a plague. And he was musing over it, and she said, Dad, I've got an idea. Let's take this network I made, and let's just say that this student here got on this bus and had the plague. Let's trace how it would go through my school. And he became pretty interested in that and said, you're right. Your social networks map how a plague can spread. And then he has accessed his computers at his uh, research facility, and they ran a scenario about, so what would happen in a city of like 10,000 if a plague came and we kept the schools open or we closed the schools down? And as a result, by closing the schools down, they found out that uh, only maybe 100 people would die from the plague. If they kept the schools open, as many as uh, four or 5,000 would die from the plague in that city. He, in turn, had a friend who was working for the Bush administration. So he called him up and said, hey, let me show you what my daughter did. And uh, so they brought it down to Washington. The people of Washington got it and said, this is something we never really thought about before. We have to make this school closing process a part of our pandemic planning. So that's what we're in today. So you think back on where did the whole school closing issue came? It came become because a middle school student had access to a computer program in which application was prized over repetition. And so that's the kind of thing I think that we can get kids, you know, not everybody's going to solve a national problem. But the more we give kids a license to think about how do you apply this information, I think the more engaged they are going to get in their learning and the more positive outcomes are going to come. So that's the second one, to move from basic repetition to application. And the third uh, kind of trajectory I see is one where we expand thinking. You know, we get kids to think not in terms of individual discrete entities, but we get them to think more in patterns and interactions of patterns. And one example I saw of that, again, working in the middle school, was prior to working with with the science teacher, he would have kids explore hurricanes. And pretty much all he did was to say, you know, a hurricane is a lot of winds, and then we looked at the videos of the devastation coming into the west coast of Florida, I'm sorry, the east coast of Florida most of the times. And they talked about a few of the components of the hurricane. But when I worked with them, we had the kids start over in Africa and to say, what is the system of events that lead to the formation of a hurricane? And so they went all the way back over to um, Africa and started to see that it all began with a dust storm in the Sahara that threw dust particles in the air. And then uh, moisture would form around the dust particles, and that led to rain, that led to upper atmosphere turbulence, that led to the development of a thunderstorm that went out to the sea, then interacted with the water currents, and as it moved off, it tended to gain more and more power. And it became a whole system of interactive events that eventually resulted in a hurricane. So when the kids then started thinking more in terms of the hurricane as a system, the teacher posed the problem to them. So how do you prevent the damage of hurricanes? In the prior classes, when he asked them, they all went to building concrete walls along the Florida coast or something like that, or building houses up on stilts. 
because these kids had started thinking of a system of events, they started going over to Africa and started thinking, what would happen if we planted grass in the Sahara Desert? So we prevented the initial cause of this, which are the windstorms that, that started over there. You know, or what happens if we change some of the temperature gradients along coming across the ocean? So they were thinking in a much broader sense about what a hurricane can, because the emphasis, the shift was from not just what are the facts of the hurricane, but how do you think about the system of hurricane? You know, to get them thinking in broader sense. So I think with computers, by setting up multiple resources, we can engage students in developing their thinking patterns in terms of systems, not just in terms of uh, discrete entities. So you've talked about moving from learners to students, talked about shifting from repetition into application, and talked about thinking in, in systems and patterns rather in maybe facts and data. How do you see that moving once we get back into the classroom? How can we help educators move from a, a passive student into an active learner? But I think people bandy about a term called blended. So that there are some things that can happen well in a physical classroom. You know, you can set people up in groups, you can give them discrete assignments, you can do some assessment, you can give them specific directions. So there are some things that happen very well in the physical classroom. The more that that can be blended with the computers, you know, is I think that's that will be the evolution that uh, is going to come out of this. In classrooms that I've worked with recently, when students come into the classroom, you know, they have a broad topic and they will all get their computers from the computer cart and sit down and decide this is where I'm going today. So they're all working on the computer and the teacher is walking around the room saying, how are you doing? What are you doing? You know, okay, well, do you have a question or I'm watching what you're doing? Have you thought about this? Or what about if you can think about that? Or they work online on a chat using a chat bar with other students to say, anybody have an idea in this? Or the students will bring their computers over to other students and say, I'm trying to figure this thing out. Can you help me right here on this? So it, it becomes, uh, instead of students sitting physically, you know, and listening and doing what the teachers told them to do within a physical space, they are doing that basically with their own computers. So it's, it's, they're physically there, but they're also interacting with their computers that serves as kind of a portal into a much larger, um, resource form for their learning. And kind of in line with that, the fourth direction I see having is a movement from problem solving into problem posing. It's an interesting thing because if you look, people talk about wanting kids to be good problem solvers. And if you look at the research on problem solving, an interesting fact is that people tend to frame problems in a way that they know how to solve them. So they look to their past experience and given a new problem saying, oh, this is this, this is how I'm going to solve it because this was worked in the past. And it's kind of a convergent thought pattern that happens when people go into solve problems. When we move into problem posing, the teachers or the educators work off the idea that how a problem is posed often determines how it's going to be solved. We uh, worked with a group of, again, middle school uh, students on this and in the past, the unit was on Tanzania. So they were given, you know, geographic maps to fill out. They were given readings on the economy. They were given readings on the climate. They were given readings on the political system. 
And at the end, you know, of course, there were quizzes and tests on, you know, what is the political system? What's the name of this, of this river? What's their monetary unit? When were they founded? What are the key points in their history? Instead, we said to them, here's all this information you have on Tanzania. There were some videos or readings and stuff. What problems do you think that they are facing that stand in the way of their development as a country? And so we had kids really get in there, not trying to solve a problem, but to pose a problem. And jumping ahead on that, we were concerned with whether their ideas that come out would be less than the curriculum would originally have asked for on target with the curriculum or beyond the curriculum. 95% of the students went way beyond what the curriculum ever involved in terms of what they explored. A group of them came back to say the cultural patterns in Tanzania really keep women in a second-class citizenship. That's a major problem because in keeping women in second-class citizenship, they are not fully utilizing a great potential that they have in their country, a great resource. So that's the problem. They basically outlined it, the economic, political, religious, cultural dimensions of that as a problem. And then they posed it as, here are some possible paths and solutions. Other students looked at the education system and noticed that in Tanzania that kids don't pass a test at the end of eighth grade. Basically, they're kicked out of school onto the streets. And they are relegated to a life of being like beggars working on the streets. So they said, this is a major human resource problem in Tanzania. You have all these kids being kicked out of the streets. That's a problem. What do you do with the kids that don't pass the eighth grade test and can't stay in the educational system? Is there an alternative? They looked up uh, ideas on the tours of the uh, problem. Of how do you capitalize on the great plains and the uh, wild beast uh, migrations that happen as a tourist possibility to build up the economy of the country? So it was just amazing by turning them loose and to say, please identify a problem. They went well, well beyond what the curriculum normally would have presented to them. Ended up, I think, learning a heck of a lot more about Tanzania than they ever would have had they followed the uh, established curriculum. The thing that kind of wraps it up for me is I had to summarize like the research on learning. The key phrase on that is people tend to learn what they wonder about. People will just, you know, well, I wonder about this or I think about that. Or I'm trying to reason about this. And when they, when they get a thought like that, kids, uh, teenagers, adults are pretty good at figuring out like how to proceed on that. And they'll proceed on the things that they wonder about using the three principles that tend to be behind. Uh, we have like an inherent preponderance to learn. And as long as three can, the conditions of autonomy, that we have a sense of autonomy and choice over what we can learn, that we experience a sense of competence. So you can see in the traditional classroom, a lot of times choice is not there and autonomy isn't there because the learning is scripted. The idea of competence, which is I can do this uh, in a way that I feel successful. Once I feel successful, I have a tendency to keep doing it. So if students in a traditional classroom start to get running up against barriers, you know, and they feel incompetent as a learning, they tend to back away from that because they don't want to keep doing things that they feel incompetent about. So people wonder about stuff and have an economy and choice to proceed on it. They feel a sense of competence. And then the third issue that's very important is the feeling of respect. Because I've seen the classrooms where the teachers prize autonomy and the development of competence. Students feel a sense of respect when the teacher is said, 
okay, you have enough faith in me that I can do this learning and feeling that respect, feel really good about it. So I'm going to continue doing this. So that's the final thing is like wrapping up those other things about thinking, learning, problem posing, application, all are wrapped up in an envelope of wondering. You know, how do we basically encourage students to wonder about stuff and then to learn about it, to apply it, to think of problems around it, and to just basically act as um, agents of their own learning. And I think that computers can do this, a computer-centered environment with its multiple resources, multiple options, can do that in concert with a physical classroom. So yeah, I, I agree. People... I think uh, I think computers can definitely be part of that. You mentioned resource buffet and having that system both in the classroom and online for students to draw from. It also made me think of a couple of different things when you ask, are we asking the right questions or how are we framing the problem versus how are we solving the problem? It reminded me of Henry Ford when he first introduced the car and he said, well, if I would have asked people what they wanted, they would have asked for a faster horse. Because that was the problem they were solving. But he looked at the problem differently and created a new solution to the problem, which, of course, today we all have cars and drive cars. But and also the way we talk to our children and working with young children, you know, instead of asking that question of what do you want to be when you grow up? But instead, looking at the world the way your students looked at Tanzania and saying, what problem is it that you want to solve? And what do we need to learn and what are the steps to get there? And, and initially giving those students agency and trusting them to be able to follow what they're doing. And in our classrooms, we have a, we actually have a wonder wall where students can put up questions throughout the week that just pop into their head. And then we can explore through those questions, whether it turns into a whole unit or whether it's a quick YouTube video to answer a question and follow a thought process. But definitely that sense of wonder and especially in younger students is so important in fostering that love of learning and that sense of wonder. And one of the other things that you mentioned was how students are sometimes afraid to look into what they're wondering about or afraid to take that next step. And I'm curious your thoughts on testing or standardized testing and assessment in the future of school and the future of education. One of the things I've seen with students coming in is they want to get the right answer. They want to get the A. They're looking for whether it's right or wrong. And the process of learning, especially when you go into project-based learning, is so much more about the application and the process than it is about the solution and the answer. So what are your thoughts on what role testing might have in education as we move forward? I think that there's been a major shift in uh, that testing stuff. When it first came out, and this is where I've worked with a couple of the national testing associations, the ones that have standardized tests. And one of the firms say, we owned uh, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Dallas, Miami, and New York, and Chicago, because they did all the testing for that. They So they were big players nationally. And they grappled internally with what they were doing with their tests and how in the early years of No Child Left Behind, the testing process was really misused because the term then was it was mostly mastery testing you know, which is facts and figures and could you do the computation and, you know, there's vocabulary and stuff like that. And um, what came out of it was some standard, say, 75 out of 100, you know, students in a district had to match this or otherwise the school district was under like state guidance or if they got above it, they were called being in a safe harbor where they could kind of keep doing what they were doing. 
But there was so much pushback on that that there was a movement to start thinking more in terms of growth, where every individual student, instead of getting kind of a, a single score that everybody had to get to, that understanding the differentiation of learners, that you could easily use um, statistical procedures to set up a um, growth index for every student. You know, at whatever level they were at, there's a way that you can figure out that this student should, in comparable to like all other students that are similar to this student, probably can believe that they could gain by 10 points on this test the next year. So every student had an individual growth target. So there's, there's a movement away from having like a single figure that everybody has to, is like good, bad, to more, let's target individual growth. And the second change that came in the testing was moving from particular items, do you know this fact, you know that fact, to much more thinking patterns. So you get the reading tests are much more comprehension-based. The writing tests are much more communication-based. You know, you can communicate ideas. The math's much more thinking in terms of problems. So ironically, I find that the current standardized tests I'm working with have actually outstripped the school systems in terms of becoming more reform oriented because they're testing things in terms of the thinking skills and the comprehension skills and the problem solving skills that are different from what the schools are teaching. The schools are teaching still more and very general, more like the facts and the civic stuff that were normal testing years ago. So I have hope that the way most of the standardized testing is going today, that is actually going to be able to pull the schools forward in thinking less about facts and data and more into broader-based thinking, conceptualizing patterns. So that's the hope I have for the way the whole testing, most of the testing industry I've been uh, associated with is moving. Yeah, I I hope you're right. <laughs> I hope so, too. <laughs> the schools I work with, one, I find they don't really understand what's on the tests, uh, and two, they misuse them and they don't use them, the full resources that are available there. I don't understand why, but uh, they just, they don't do it. Yeah, it's been interesting during this time to see them waive state standardized testing and to see them waive SAT tests for college. And it just brings about the idea of if we can let those things go so easily, how important are they really? And are we testing the right things? I think a move towards thinking skills and you know the critical skills used an application of what we're learning would definitely be useful in helping students to move forward and understanding where their gaps in education are and and where their challenges and where their strengths are. An interesting thing is if I've dug down into these tests that's coming up, you talked earlier about the um, inquisitiveness of younger kids. If we look at the results in elementary schools, like most of the testing is like second or third grade up through fifth grade or so when they get moved into middle schools, that we see high performance growth, achievement goes up, and their growth goes up. They're doing really well. Nationally, there's a phenomenon called the middle school slump, which is somehow once we take kids and start to put them into middle schools and even high schools, their year-to-year growth drops. And it's a puzzling issue. Somehow there's something that we're doing with younger kids in the elementary schools, which is, I think, more exploratory, more investigative, more curious, and less tied down to teaching specific facts and discipline 
than you get in middle school and high school. Particularly when I mean, you get into high school and you talk with a teacher, it becomes whatever chemistry, English literature, uh, physics, particularly social issues they're dealing with, that becomes dominant. They have to learn these facts and figures in my discipline. And that's versus the curiosity type of approach that you see in uh, elementary schools. So another possible outcome of education, if people can start seeing, you know, as a result of these tests, that the students' year-to-year growth on the test starts dropping dramatically after they get out of elementary school. And if they start asking, really engaging that and say, well, could we teach middle school and high school more like we teach elementary school? You know, we might have a great improvement in our education system. And so I think, again, there's there are components of the tests that could be very instructive if the districts actually looked at them and were willing to be guided by the results. Yeah, and it sounds like uh, an idea of moving away from a siloed subject type of education into more an interdisciplinary project connecting into life skills and how can we actually use this information. So instead of memorization of facts, actual, you know, as you said earlier, application of skills and concepts might help older learners continue that imagination and that love of learning and that interest in what they're doing and what they're learning. Yeah, there's a big reform that could happen in education, but with these, you use the word silos or with the dedication, I find that teachers have to their discipline, that their discipline comes first over their students. Um, and I try to advocate for the types of things you're talking about, say the student to learner shift. The refrain I often hear is that, well, not in my class. They have to be students first and they have to learn this stuff. Then they can go on to do that other thing. I'm hopeful that with the shift in education, with what we're experiencing now, with so many students learning from home and in definitely a variety of different situations across the country and the amount of support they're getting, the amount of work they're getting, the amount of schooling that they're getting, that hopefully some of these students have time to follow some of those passion projects and draw in those interdisciplinary ideas and begin to love learning again and learn something that they're really interested in. I think another thing may happen, too, that uh, this in my experience working with teachers is that initially when I have them work within a computer-based environment, particularly with Internet resources and things like that, and every kid working off their own uh, device and exploring questions, basically setting up their own paths and journey through the information, it's very uncomfortable for them. And it's very disturbing. It's like I've been taught all my life to be a teacher. And I'm not teaching, you know, it, this really makes me uncomfortable. But as they, as we kind of work through it and they have to take small steps into one teacher referred to me, you know, giving up the control to help not teaching so much, but helping students to learn more. You know, we would have discussions about just, okay, so we're moving here. What do you think we should do? And I would say, well, here's what we could do. And she would say, well, really uncomfortable with that. That's a big, big step. And that's okay. So what step would you be willing to take? And she would say, well, we'll just, we'll give them more control over this. And that's okay. Let's do that. And each time, you know, with those small steps, she goes, I work better than I ever thought it was. And then so she started becoming more and more confident. And we, after working together like this on small steps for about a year, she said, I can't, this is so much easier and so much better than anything I've ever done before. I don't know why it took me so long to get here. 
So I think as teachers are forced into this homeschooling um, process using, um, you know, internet-based resources, that they're going to stumble upon ideas that are going to make the process more enjoyable for them. And then as it makes it more enjoyable for them, they're going to uh, continue with it. And the other factor that um, in the research I've done on what is an intervention, what is a fact that promotes teachers' growth and development, that factor is kids. When I've uh, worked with, uh, we've been interested in like, te- you know, like how to get teachers to use, you know, this, that, or the other format for teaching, you know, let's say more student-centered. And uh, we found that some teachers did it and some teachers didn't. So one of our research methods was to go in and interview them and say, so tell me, like, what happened? How did you make the shift? And almost universally, the teachers that did it said, well, it was the students. I went in, tried this one day, and um, students got really, really excited. And they said, can we do more of that? And I did. Yeah. And they said, can we do more of that? So the fact that the, the students really drive more teacher change than I think anything else that we do is um, something that may be operative here with the um, computers at home, is that as students start to find ways that they really enjoy that and the teachers find, oh, the, teach, the kids are really responding to this, so I'm going to do more of that. Because to a person, teachers love their kids. Uh, they're dedicated to their kids. They want to do the best of the kids. And no matter what they do, it's always driven by the fact that I really, really care for my kids, and I'm going to do everything I can to make my best for them. So if the kids start feeding back, when you do that, we really like it. The teachers are going to start doing that. So I think the kids are going to help if you will, pattern the teacher's uh, change in practice as the kids experience more joy in using the computer at home. Yeah, that's great. And I think that's probably a good place to wrap up. But it's great advice for both our educators and for parents to go ahead and let your kids explore a little bit and find that thing that they really enjoy that brings them joy and let them dig deeper into that and let them explore and let them learn those things that are are really high interest and engaging for them. I will give you one quick anecdote on that, where I actually was working with a group of teachers on that. And one of the teachers um, kept, she was doing really, really well. And I, towards the end, um, the end of the semester, uh, I said, you are really, really doing well with making these changes. Just, you know, for the rest of us, how did you do it? What did you do? And uh, she very reluctantly said, well, the second week I was here, we went through this, you know, we went through the seminar with you and I went back to my classroom and I was really despondent. I had no idea. So the kid said to me, Miss, whatever, what, what's, what's going on? Oh, we went through the seminar this morning and I'm talking to this guy from UConn and we're supposed to be doing this stuff. And he said, I'm supposed to do this. I have no idea what to do. And the kid goes, so your teacher isn't happy with you. And she goes, yeah. And they said, we'll help you. So what's he tell you to do? And they, he said, well, he's supposed to do this. So the kids would say, okay, well, let's figure it out. So they would actually start saying, you know, did this work or this work? What do you think about this? And they really partnered with her to try to figure out how to make it happen. And she was, uh, to her great credit, was open enough to them to say, tell me your ideas. What is going to make you learn more? And how can we do that? And they told her and she followed that. So um, she was very successful. So. Kids will tell their teachers, you know, what they need to do to help them learn more if the teachers can listen. That takes a lot of trust in your students. (laughs) It's also great advice for parents, too. 
Yes. Listen to your kids. They yes. will tell you. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much for okay. your time today, Barry. We've learned so much and you have so many great thoughts on, on education and on what's happening in this current time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Rebel Educator Podcast. To learn more about us, visit rebeleducator.com, where you can learn about our professional development opportunities for educators and students and see our project library. If you're in the San Francisco Bay Area, check out our progressive, inclusive elementary school, Up Academy, at upacademysf.com. We'd like to say a special thank you to Atmosphere for use of their audio track, Miho. Thanks again for joining us, and we wish you well no matter where your educational journey may lead.